welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, Joseph Wright, a native of the West Riding of Yorkshire, started working in a factory at the age of six. He did not learn to read until he was 15, inspired to do so by a workmate who read news bulletins about the Franco-Prussian War from the newspapers. Wright was taught by another worker who used the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress as teaching texts. He then attended night school for six pence a week, practiced shorthand by taking down sermons in the Methodist chapel his family attended, was part of a Sunday school where he organized a lending library, and at the age of 18 started his own night school charging only two pennies a week. By the time he was 21, he had saved up enough for a term at the University of Heidelberg, to which he walked 250 miles after taking a ferry to Antwerp so that he could save his money. Eventually, he earned a PhD from Heidelberg in comparative linguistics, when no one in the United Kingdom was earning a PhD in anything. And from 1901 to 1925, Joseph Wright was professor of comparative philology at the University of Oxford, a pioneer in the study of regional English dialect and teacher of, among others, J.R.R. Tolkien. While his eventual profession might make Wright extraordinary, many of the particulars of his education were absolutely typical, as Jonathan Rose makes clear in his monumental book, The Intellectual Life of the British Working Classes. Published in 2001, it won the Jacques Barzoum Prize in Cultural History, the Longman History Today Historical Book of the Year Prize, and the British Council Prize. Its third edition is published this fall by Yale University Press. Jonathan Rose is the William R. Kennan Professor of History at Drew University. He served as the founding president of the Society for the History of Authorship, Reading, and Publishing, and also as the president of the Northeastern Victorian Studies Association. Jonathan Rose, thank you for being here on Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. So, um, as you say in the introduction to the uh, third edition, you began as an intellectual historian, became a historian of the book, wrote this book, and all of a sudden found that you were a labor historian, a historian of class, <laughs> a historian of, of so many things. And I think that Which speaks is, to- It's not something I had planned to be. I, I had gone into this profession uh, planning to be a uh, historian of ideas, of high intellectual history. and uh, But I went to graduate school in the 1970s, and at that point, those assumptions were very much under attack. Uh, the questions were raised. Were these great intellectuals simply talking to each other? Uh, were they uh, irrelevant to the great masses of people? Should we not be studying popular culture and popular literature? Um, so I began exploring under that challenge uh, the question of, well, yes, who is reading all these great books? And of course, what I eventually found is, yes, they did have a mass readership. They were read at the bottom of the social scale. And therefore, we cannot draw a, a invidious distinction between high culture and popular culture. Much high culture is, in fact, popular culture. So I have to ask a question um, about evidence because there's yes. so much of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you said this is obviously then inspired by this is uh, you can see throughout the book that you are reacting to everything that's happening in the 70s in your graduate school and then in the 80s i can remember as an undergraduate listening to some of these debates since like say a class on history and theory where this is this is about reader response yes. all these things are salted throughout the book and you have um, um extremely powerful responses based upon evidence to many of the things that people 
were fighting mad, maybe literally coming to blows about in the late 80s, uh, by the late 80s, uh, in English departments and in history departments. So I... And then I look at that and I see there's a, almost a, I can almost, there's a history of your thought in the book along this massive amounts of evidence. So what I'm to imagine is you were amassing this evidence over 25 years prior to the pub, prior to writing and publishing the book. Uh, more or less. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, you're quite right. When, when uh, the idea of a history of reading was first proposed, the objection was, well, there's no evidence out there. Uh, right. Ordinary people have not left a record of an experience so evanescent, so private as that of, 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 of reading. Um, well, it turns out that that was not true. Uh, the, uh, uh, there is a massive bibliography, it was published in the 1980s, of the autobiographies of the British working class, uh, two terrific historians, David Vincent and John Burnett, put it together. And they found 2,000 of these autobiographies. Now, some were published by mainstream publishers, and others was a a few pages scribbled, you know, in a notebook, and it's in someone's attic somewhere. Um, but basically what I did is I I, uh, I went to Britain. I got a uh, uh, a Brit Rail pass. I got a, a pair of running shoes, a laptop <laughs> computer, and a backpack, and basically whistle-stopped from one library to another reading these various uh, like autobiographies. A professor and, of mine who said he knew every good curry shop near a county records office in Britain. Oh, there you go. It, okay. <laughs> the same it, was, it was great fun. It was almost a, like an anthropological exp expedition. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, I would say of these 2,000 autobiographies, probably half contain important information about reading habits. In other words, when working people write their own history, they say, this is important. This is what tells you a lot about me. You have to know this. So, uh, so that was much of the evidence I was able to uncover. Now, you're right. This was the heyday of literary theory. Mm -hmm. And you had you know, one theory in particular, reader response theory, which tried to speculate about how readers may have responded to given texts. But that was the problem with it. It was, it was speculative. Right. And uh, uh, often it was simply what some professor imagined people 200 years ago were, were, were thinking. One of the many reactions I, I had reading the book, as I said to you before we began, uh, I had a lot of, we'll get to my anger, but there was an irritation that I had spent so much time, you know, as an undergraduate and graduate, imagining reader response without actually um, trying to find, uh, no, without demanding that anyone show me evidence. <laughs> right, right. Oh. And, and things, when you look at the actual evidence, it is far more fascinating than anything that the uh, uh, literary theorists imagined, and of course, much more unexpected. So uh, uh, there were in this kind of work. There are lots of nice eureka moments. Yeah, well, you had so you had five hundred autobiographies. You had more uh, than that. Actually, actually, I read most of the two thousand. Now, yeah, at that, that some of them I say are only a few pages long. I don't want to yes. exaggerate. No, but. Uh, uh, I think that's a very useful method of research. You find a body of primary source material, just read it through completely and extract yeah. what, what, what you can get out of it. Yeah. Um, and so you, I mean, yeah. this is, it, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible sample size uh, for any qualitative study, uh, almost a quantitative study, uh, but I'm not to judge that. Um, but let's, so throughout the book, um, there's a trip hammer of individual stories and of individual reactions to mm -hmm. various aspects of, 
of reading and intellectual culture. So let's begin with Elizabeth Ashby and her yeah. family. You begin your book and in you very nicely present in the Ashby family story, there is um, a variety of themes that you then pursue through the rest of the book. So you could describe her and her family and and what you sort of then pursue through the book from their story. Well, she's a young working woman in the mid-Victorian period. She had a baby out of wedlock. Yeah. Wasn't that uncommon back then. And while she's recuperating from her pregnancy, she reads the only book in her house, which is the Bible. Uh, that too was, was fairly common. But the Bible, it turns out, is, I guess, what, what theorists would call a multivalent book. I mean, you could read almost any message into it. In some ways, it, it's very conservative. It does tell people to uh, be content in the station in which it is pleased God to call you. In some ways, it's a very radical text of... Uh, 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 of uh, uh, you know, the social criticism, uh, there shall be no distinctions drawn between you know, various gods, God's children, and she gave it the radical reading. And let's bear in mind that the first modern political revolution, which was of course Cromwell's revolution, the Puritan Revolution of the 1640s, was impelled by the Bible. I mean, the Bible had, finally, had been published finally in English. Everybody's reading it. And uh, finally, the Puritans are inspired to rise up and try to create a commonwealth based on biblical principles. In much the same way, let's say Iran is, you know, contemporary Iran is based on Quranic principles, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yes, these kinds of texts can be revolutionary in, 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 in force. Now, her, her, her son um, uh, not only read the Bible, but began reading more broadly. And uh, he was part of the primitive Methodist movement. And I think that Methodism did a great deal to encourage the reading habit. Mm -hmm. Now, it's true, early Methodists tended to frown upon secular literature. You read your Bible, and that's in tracts, and that's basically it. But, you know, once you've got that reading habit, there's basically no limit to what you can do. And over time, the Methodists start to become more and more broad in their reading habits. And they're not just reading the good book, they're reading also the great books. They're being introduced to, to they're introducing themselves to various uh, uh, classical uh, uh, literate, liter literary texts. Uh, I certainly think by, by the early 20th century, they've, as a movement, they've arrived at that point. So in that sense, I think that Methodism really uh, uh, intellectually mobilized the British working class, in that sense, performed a very valuable service. Yeah, I should have added, there's a history of, of religion <laughs> and religious culture and a political culture in this as well, as we'll get to the, the Methodism labor connection, the, right, um, right. which is so strong, uh, which is often referred on, but there's an intellectual link between the the religious culture of, of, of Methodism and the political culture of the early labor party. Oh, definitely. Um, uh, you refer in autodidact culture. Yes. Uh, this is a theme I know something about in the 18th century, um, since so many of the people that we think of as American founders and framers and so on were autodidacts from Nathaniel Green of Rhode Island to Richard Allen, the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. These all, yes. They did all their studying. Uh, sometimes other people teach them, but most of their studying is done alone. Yes. Um, arguably, autodidact culture is the most respected way, being an autodidact is the most respected way of being a learner in the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, but what we see in your book is that autodidact culture really came into its own in the 19th century uh, England. Uh, could you describe sort of what autodidact culture was then and sort of the conditions for its flourishing? 
Okay. Well, simply it means self-education, which is to say education outside of formal educational institutions. Uh, that be, and, and that being said, you know, it's a point I make, no autodidact is entirely self-educated. They have to be located in a culture, in a community, which to some extent encourages this sort of thing. And uh, uh, one institution that, you know, the, the working class has created was uh, in Victorian England, was called the Mutual Improvement Society. Yes. It simply, it's simply an informal group of, of, you know, workers. They get together for kind of a seminar. They meet maybe once a week or every two weeks or every month. And they have a, a, maybe a, a book to read in common or someone delivers a paper. They discuss it. Mm-hmm. And um, no professors need to apply. Uh, it is, it is all, it is all done on the, on, on a grassroots level. Um, we don't know a lot about these groups because they were ephemeral. They didn't leave a lot of records. So the only re- really record we have is those who are the memoirs of those who belonged to these groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were clearly very widespread and uh, you could find them in almost any small coal town. So they could, and they could take the, um, they could take a multiple different guises. And I, uh, so yeah. they could be those four guys getting together to talk about Paradise Lost. Yes. Um, or to listen to one of them give a paper on Paradise Lost. Right. Or upon, you know, labor, the 1848 revolution uh, uh, as seen 20 years later. But they could also move all the way up into like lending libraries. Um, yes. Which might be ephemeral. Or then workmen's and mechanics institutes and so on. Because you describe all these various sort of things because it's like a little constellation of, 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 of social capital. Sure. Sure. They, uh, now they, they often would form their own little libraries. Uh, uh, often at Sturge, they just take in newspapers, newspapers rather expensive back then mm-hmm. uh, in the early 19th century, they were taxed. So uh, if you pooled your resources together, you could get one subscription, then sort of have it circulate all around in a, uh, um, uh, you could a- a- add a few books to it. Uh, some of these libraries became quite extensive, especially the the miners of South Wales, the coal miners. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you've seen them celebrated in, in books like How Green Was My Valley. Um, they they uh, they would have pennies deducted from their wages, and they used that to support their own libraries. That area was not well served by public libraries, so the miners created their own, uh, which often had some fairly extensive collections. Uh, but the important thing here is that with public libraries, it is middle-class professionals who are deciding which books they're going to acquire and which they're not going to acquire. Whereas uh, with the miners' libraries, the miners themselves mm-hmm. control control the acquisitions. Um, um, there was uh, uh, the first two of these libraries, they were up actually in Scotland, Wadlockhead at Leadhills, uh, these were lead miners, and the, in the mid 1700s, they set up what may be the first working class libraries in the world. Yeah. Uh, well, Scott, I mean, Franklin yeah. would disagree with you because he was a mechanic <laughs> too. And they, I, I noticed those were founded in 1742. And by uh, 1732, the free library, the, the, basically the group of guys who got together, apprentices and mechanics who got together to form a library was 1732. They bought, yeah, they started buying point. books in 1732, but which right. is just indicates how precocious that whole effort was I, I, and odd uh, in Philadelphia. Yes, but I think the Enlightenment encouraged 
Uh, I mean, there, there was a popular enlightenment in addition to yeah. the more elite enlightenment, certainly. And I yeah. think it encouraged uh, uh, um, education and the powers of human reason. Uh, the uh, uh, the obvious conclusion is that anybody can educate himself with an open yes. mind. Yes. Yes. So to one of the really revelatory aspects, many revelatory aspects about this book, but one of them for me was the um, the how to say this delicately. Um, I, I don't know if we've all noticed that maybe in the history department, you look down the hall and you realize the English department doesn't really believe it. No one is really talking about the liberating effects of literature anymore. And no, if, you, if you did that, it would be probably what the French call a fox pass. Um, it would not be a good thing. Uh, it would it would sort of end conversation perhaps abruptly as they kind of stare at you pityingly. And yet... We look at the people reading these books, uh, from Pilgrim's Progress to Robinson Crusoe to, and we'll get through many others, to Ruskin, um, and they all firmly believe in the liberating effects of literature. Yes. Uh, could you talk about the 1906 poll of labor MPs? Because that was a very nice, uh, it was a very yeah. fascinating uh, poll when well, labor MPs- yeah. Right, right. Mm -hmm. British election in 1906, for the first time, the Labor Party wins- a large block of seats. So a, a magazine interviewed them all and said, basically, what are the books that shaped you? That, you know, and mm -hmm. um, uh, the results are fascinating because Karl Marx gets very few votes. Uh, <laughs> but the, the most popular authors are John Ruskin, who mm -hmm. is also a socialist, but a very different kind of socialist from Karl Marx. He is a socialist who believes in, in reviving the handicrafts, who believes in... Uh, um, uh, uh, making work meaningful for, for workers. It's not a purely economic kind of socialism. And um, uh, Charles Dickens, of course, is very popular, and the Bible is very, is, yeah. is very popular. In fact, if you uh, ask the, uh, those labor MPs what, what was their vision for, the, for a socialist society, they would say it's, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, they very much derived their, 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 uh, 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 their socialism from biblical sources, and the, and the Methodist Church, yes, certainly. Uh, they rejected Marx because Marx was a materialist, and mm -hmm. that, they felt, was, uh, uh, was, was the wrong direction for socialism to go. Um, if you asked, in general, which ideological texts inspired them, well, they just point to all of the classic literature, all the great books, which they felt had fed into their, their, uh, their outlook. And I think that gave well, them a very broad and liberal perspective. On, on, on life. What is shocking to me is on this list, uh, it's on, if anyone has the, the new third edition, it's on page 42. Sidney and Beatrice Webb, four mentions. Yes. Uh, Charles Kingsley, Christian socialist, five mentions. Mm -hmm. jo uh, Walter Scott, 11. <laughs> yes. a, a Tory lowlander. I mean, what it, it's, could you speak about that? Because people uh, adore Scott and they get a lot out of him. They do, they do, and and yes, it, if you read him, you know, on the surface, he's a very conservative writer, a very conservative romantic, uh, obviously a high Tory, but on the other hand, he is um, uh, uh, a social historian. Uh, before there was social history, how did people learn about how ordinary people lived in the past? You learned it from novels, and you certainly get that uh, out of Scott. The serfs, for example, become characters in books like Ivanhoe. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, characters with you know real interests and 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 uh, 
and, and personalities. So I think on that level, uh, they admired Scott, which, which suggests further that even if to critics a certain book seems to be you know, reactionary in its politics, that may not be the way that these uh, uh, ordinary readers are reading it. They may, re- they may see an entirely different, rather liberatory message in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, uh, uh, so, so this is why I find much of the political criticism that is now popular in English departments, I think you alluded to that, where they're looking for uh, uh, evidence of or, you know, Orientalism or systemic racism or sexism or whatever, um, they're not taking into account that that might not be how readers read these books. Yeah. In fact. yeah. Well, and on that, let's pursue that. It's Let's talk about Robinson Crusoe, because yes. that was, again, where I read that and I say, oh, yes, Defoe was talking about slavery. Yeah. Um, and obviously, perhaps... Um, I'm looking at this as sort of an 18th century historian who thinks a lot about slavery. And I'm thinking, well, this is, it could be, we could argue that he's either against it, or maybe he's trying to uh, make his audience complicit. Who knows? But mm-hmm. there's obviously people read that and they get slavery out of it. But of course, that's not actually what readers got out of it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the uh, uh, there's a famous sequence in which uh, uh, Crusoe discusses with Friday, uh, you know, Christianity, God, the whole, the whole idea of it. And, and, and Friday starts asking a lot of, uh, you know, difficult questions. Well, if, if God is all powerful and all good, why does, doesn't he kill the devil and get yeah. rid of him? And I think that uh, uh, what Defoe is doing, or at least that's the way that this book is being read, is that he is you know, decentering the West, as we would put it mm-hmm. today. He is uh, almost providing an anthropological critique of certain uh, Western ethnocentric um, mm-hmm. um, uh, conceptions. Uh, I mean, to give you another example is that uh, a, a book like Pilgrim's Progress was enormously popular among Africans. Mm-hmm. It was the first book that missionaries translated after the Bible into mm-hmm. you know, all the various languages of Africa, and they simply these readers simply embraced it because they read it as a fable of colonialism and how do you and how and how do you resist colonialism which is mm-hmm. a, an entirely plausible reading of of uh, uh, of the book so readers tend to take books and use them the way uh, 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 in ways that they find profitable and enlightening and liberating Roger mm-hmm. Chartier uh, 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 is a very eminent you know, book historian and uh, calls this appropriation well, yes, we do. Uh, books are, uh, are are tools, and we use them the way we want to use them. So, uh, Mark Twain famously said that Ivanhoe created Southern Cavalier culture. I think there was a, yes. these, these neo romantic myths of, of of medievalism. He might have been wrong about that, but he was he could he could be right, and it could also be true. While at the same time, labor MPs see. Saxon peasants being oppressed and uh, see something else. People have the different frames of reference as they approach the same work of literature. Both those things can be true. Exactly, exactly. And so, so in, in other words, to, to, I mean, to a large extent, yes, readers make meaning. Yeah, uh, and that's why we have to study them because if we don't, we don't really understand what is what the what what influence these books are having. Speaking of someone even now uh, less exalted than uh, Sir Walter Scott. Uh, how about Samuel Smiles uh, <laughs> yeah. and Smiles Self-Help? This is uh, certainly, um, I, I think the feeling would be no true intellectual could take self-help books like this seriously. Uh, smiles can't be taken seriously, but 
when you reveal what's actually in Smiles, mm-hmm. um, it sort of train and what people got out of him, um, it sort of another was another revelatory moment. So, could you describe uh, Smiles and his his mission and how people well, I, I, responded I, I, to it? I, I think he is commonly misportrayed yes. as someone who basically was pre- preaching self interest and just just get ahead in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, when he talked about self-help, he meant self-help not for, just for individuals, but for the working class as a whole. And that's that you know, we that political efforts should be directed toward raising the class as a whole. And this is a book, um, Samuel Smiles. What's the t- full title? Self-help. I, I, self-help I, I, uh, uh, 1859. Yeah, it, okay, was, it was published, and of course, enormously popular. Uh, but he would agree, even time, in Marx and Darwin. <laughs> right. Exactly. In fact, the same year as Charles Darwin's. Arjun yeah, species, yeah. but um, uh, he was at a time when very few middle class people supported labor unions. He did, and he felt that this was a means by which the, the workers could, could again raise their entire class up as a whole. And he promoted education again, not just as a, as a measure of individual self improvement, but as collective improvement. Mm-hmm. So, on that sense, I think that his book has been. Uh, given short shrift and uh, was uh, much more emancipatory than many historians would give it credit for. And it was, and, and for many of them, was sort of an intellectual gateway drug. I mean, it led them to many, many good things. Way, good, good way of putting it. Yes, gateway drug. Yes, right. I, right. I, I think, well, what was fascinating to me is his emphasis on workmen scientists, uh, which I had no idea that he talked about them or mm-hmm. that he had such an emphasis on a, on a, in a period where, um, you know, Darwin's being published the same year. Huxley hasn't sort of professionalized the term scientist uh, yet. It's only 1859. Yes. And yet Smiles is saying, look at these people with their, this, this conductor on the Western Railway and his investigations into the natural world. And, and mm-hmm. it's it just a very fascinating emphasis. All right. He also published these, you know, many biographies of self-educated workers and what they'd accomplished. So that was also obviously inspirational. Yeah. So uh, speaking of um, how, People benefit from uh, material which you might think of as conservative. Uh, that includes like lists of a hundred best books. Yes. Um, perhaps now even in less repute uh, than Samuel Smiles. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say that I have all the Britannica great books. Mm-hmm. My mother got them at a library sale for ten bucks. I mean the right. entire right. set. That's and that's sort of, that's, that's sort yeah. of a marker of their yeah. cultural esteem and the sort of uh, in, amongst the the reading public as well. Um, so. Could you describe the how the hundred best books list um, sort of drove forward these this intellectual uh, mutual support of intellectual life, and and we'll go on from there to every man's library. Well, these 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 kinds of lists, I think, were helping aids to you know you know again workers who are relatively uneducated, and it's certainly true if 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 we've had the benefit of a university education, then this looks like a step backward. It looks like it's it's prepackaged culture. And this was a criticism that was directed you know, much later against Mortimer Adler, who uh, was the architect of the, you know, the Great Books of the Western World uh, program uh, issued by the Encyclopedia Britannica. By the time it came out in the 1950s, you had already achieved, to a large extent, mass higher education in the United States. You had quality paperback editions like Anchor Books. So you could, you know, there was, really wasn't much point in buying this big, heavy you know, right. uh, prepackaged uh, a set of great books. You could buy you could buy them on your own and much more cheaply. 
and with much more uh, freedom of choice, shall we say, Mm -hmm. which I agree is ideal. But if we're talking about the mid-Victorian period, then you have a lot of people uh, not educated who don't know what the great books are and are somewhat at at, at a loss. And I think in that sense, these kinds of schemes, and there were many of them, uh, uh, gave a, a roadmap to literature. Mm-hmm. And uh, 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 in that sense, I think we're very useful guides. So what were some of these schemes and how did, how did people adapt them uh, to, their, to, to, to make them their own? Well, it was, uh, um, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned Every Man's Library, which started mm-hmm. in 19- Yeah, let's talk about that. that yeah, uh, J.M. Dent. Yeah, who was the uh, the publisher of it? Um, I have, in fact, the Spectator from Everyman's Library. Because there you go, and it's uh, still it still is, is is in print one way or another. It's it's well, a, it's, yeah, I'm not sure the Spectator is, but it, I had to get it. This is like a pre-war volume, okay? Because it's really hard to find the Spectator in hardcover. I'll tell you, right? Uh, if you want to read 18th century literature, and it, and it's and it it's beautiful. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's beautifully put together. Uh, the paper has hardly um, yellowed at all. Right. It's beautifully sewn. I mean, you begin to appreciate uh, books when the more you look at sort of these, these older books that were mass market at the time. Surely. Now, J.M. Dent, who was the publisher, started out as a bookbinder, okay, mm-hmm. working class himself, uh, became a, 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 a mass market publisher. Um, and um, uh, uh, he conceived of this as a series of 1,000 of the greatest books ever published, mm-hmm. okay, uh, all selling for one shilling. Quite, quite cheaply. And again, as you say, they are produced, uh, 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 the, 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 the quality of production is really quite high. Uh, the designs are reminiscent of William Morris, who had designed mm-hmm. these very beautiful, uh, 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 finely printed books, uh, except that they're now made available to everybody. And uh, certainly it was a commercial success, certainly measured in terms of sales, sold tens of millions of copies overall. Uh, to some extent to students, I think though to some extent to working working people as well. Um, were his literary tastes somewhat old-fashioned? Yes. Um, uh, they, you know, it include, for example, the, the Spectator, which today, you know, uh, would not be studied in English classes, I think, very much. But at uh, the same, it's, but it's very interesting. Uh, let's get to that. When you discuss Dent and his sort of, in his self-culture, uh, yes. the first thing he reads about is Dr. Johnson. And uh, not too surprisingly, I see that number 10 on the list of ni- over 900 volumes when this is, is printed is the essays of Francis Bacon. So there is, uh, okay. he's, going ba- he, he's going back to essays like The Spectator, Johnson, R- Johnson's Rambler and Idler and so on to as part of his own intellectual development. Um, and so he wishes to pass on, I think, the, the progress that he made in these, in the, uh, sort of in these books, sort of instantiate it. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and yes, and in 1906, this was the literary canon. And of course, it was subject to much criticism later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was pointed out, for example, that uh, uh, Mortimer Adler's great book series did not include any black authors. Uh, mm-hmm. They always raised the example of Zora Neale Hurston. Here's an author who's been forgotten and now has been revived. And shouldn't we be paying attention to that? Yes, we should. But it turns out that the firm of J.N. Dent published Zora Neale Hurston. <laughs> I mean, the, the, he was their, uh, her English publisher. And yeah. I think the reason he did it was because he said it's all part of the same egalitarian project. 
we're publishing uh, 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 old books for disenfranchised yeah. readers and also new books by disenfranchised authors. Um, and I don't think he saw any conflict between the two. Why is it? And, and indeed, there is no conflict. Um, uh, you know, the... Uh, um, uh, uh, I mean, I mean, to a large extent, um, uh, me, Tony Morrison, who made minored in classics at uh, Howard University, and you can't understand their books unless you have a good understanding of a- ancient classical literature. In other words, mm-hmm. the, these that traditional canon uh, served to inspire uh, more modern, more diverse writers. The other, the other reason why. Well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons. There's a reason why uh, you you say that the working class uh, readers had a very conservative taste in literature, and why Dent wasn't publishing sort of the latest in the Everman series was copyright yes. and expense. Right. Could you explain that as well? Because that's uh, well, important well, to understand yeah. with the economics. It, it, it of was. This. Uh, I mean, most of the books in the Everyman's Library series were out of copyright. Sure. Um, but the uh, the more uh, I mean, uh, books in Victorian England were often very expensive. Um, the typical three volume novel, and they were published often in three volumes. That's why Dickens and, and, uh, uh, George Eliot are so long, uh, that cost, um, one and a half guineas, which was, you know, uh, uh, roughly that would be a very good working class wage for a week. Mm -hmm. You're not going to spend that much money on, on, on a new book. Uh, now eventually, of course, you would have cheaper editions put out. Uh, eventually all those expensive editions would end up in used bookstores like we bought often for a few pennies. And then, of course, working class people would buy them and read them. But by that that time, they're a generation out of date. Um, After um, Dickens dies in 1870, he is considered passe in sophisticated literary circles. He's melodramatic, he's Victorian, he's sentimental. All the modernist writers hate him. Uh, there's one, uh, uh, I think it, it's uh, 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 Decline and Fall in uh, uh, Evelyn Waugh's novel, where the hero ends up uh, imprisoned by an Abazonian tribe. And a, dust. Mich- and a missionary had left uh, uh, the collected works of Charles Dickens, and this yeah. poor guy has to spend his entire life reading the works of Charles Dickens to the chief of the tribe, and that's Evelyn Waugh's idea of hell. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But at, at, that, at that point, the, those collected works were on every working class shelf, and were still yeah. uh, and were still enormously popular. So yes, in that sense, I think working class tastes always lag about a generation behind educated middle class tastes. And and for that reason, others the um, the canon wars uh, yeah. which obsess us, as you say, are are obsession of modern academia and not have nothing to do with these people. It has nothing to right. do with the sort of readership in this period. Mm-hmm. Because, because you know, you can. Uh, and I, the, the reason is, if you're hiring in an academic department, you have to choose between hiring, let's say, a a, a Miltonist and a Caribbeanist, and then you get you get into a fight over that. Uh, it's not a problem for an ordinary reader. You just you can read whatever you like. You can read Doctor Johnson. You could read Zora Neale Hurston, and there's well, there's no conflict here. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and that has a lot to say about even readers today. Uh, if they're, if we're not, you know, if we don't take all the sens- sensibilities of academia to heart and, and sort of as, as in, in frames of reference for our own reading, um, uh, 
towards uh, you're very sharp about some things uh and i it, your pen is definitely uh, your 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 fountain pen has been sharpened before you write about um Leonard Bast and Ian e. yeah. Forrester versus what let's call it the secret life of office boys um uh because uh could you describe first of all Ian e. Forrester's character Leonard Bast and what he represents to this modernist sensibility and how and then we'll get to how sort of totally wrong it is Okay, he's he's his, his clerk in in E.M. Forster's novel *Howard's End*, uh, which is a uh, I mean it's it's it's, it's a brilliant novel, but uh, the main characters, the Schlegel sisters, are some would say are based on uh, 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 Virginia Woolf and Vanessa Stephen, uh, her, uh, um, and based on these Bloomsbury characters, and it's clear that Forster considers this Bloomsbury culture to be to be superior. Bass is trying to educate himself. He's reading John Ruskin. And as far as Forrester is concerned, it's hopeless. I mean, he doesn't understand uh, Ruskin. He's just trying to gain a little social prestige from it. Uh, despite the fact that Ruskin generally was, as we found, enormously popular amongst working class readers and deeply, deeply inspirational. Well, and that, the makes final, all, him all, that makes him all the more wrong and passe, perhaps. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And in the end... <laughs> Uh, uh, a bookshelf falls on Leonard Bass, crushes him to death. And the I, and, and what the message I think Forster is, is sending is, uh, look, it's going to do no good for these working people to educate them. They really ought to be close to the land. They ought to be sort of obedient serfs, even though Forster's a liberal. I think he was very much in the thrall of, you know, British class attitudes. Um, but the fact is that, that, um, um, the clerkly classes, who were often the sons of working men, that was the first, you know, uh, step up the economic ladder they took to be to become to become clerks. These lower white collar professions uh, were intensely well self educated and intensely uh, uh, devoted to uh, to self improvement. And um, uh, this was something that Bloomsbury uh, just turned their noses up at. Virginia Woolf has this famous essay on middle brow. Mm. Uh, well, well, who's what's a middle brow? A middle brow is someone who starts out as an ordinary reader and tries to improve their mind and are not quite up there with uh, with the highest culture, but um, uh, but they're making a real effort in that in that direction. And she is contemptuous of these. Why? What, what? 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 What explains this from from Virginia Woolf and Dwight McDonald, who I exactly. is just appropriating Dwight uh, Virginia Woolf. I mean, I, I think the reason is that they these. Middle brow culture makes culture too common. It closes class differences. If every, if everybody can buy every man's library, you know, cheaply and read through it, then what what distinction is there in getting a university education? Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the social gap between the educated classes and the self educated classes has closed. So, uh, and you want to maintain that distance to maintain your own sense of intellectual superiority. So I think for that reason, there is a constant struggle going on whereby uh, the university educated classes want to distance themselves again from the masses, and they do it by making their work more and more unintelligible or more and more a private language. We mm -hmm. saw this manifested in modernism, which was supposed to be difficult and impenetrable. And once everybody, you know, learned modernism and read it in, in college, then you had to create postmodernism, 
which was still more impenetrable and uses very, very opaque jargon to try to keep other people out of the conversation. So, so yes, what, think, yes, go ahead. This And this goes hand in hand, though, with a valorization of the lowbrow. Um, uh, which we see in that Virginia Woolf essay, and we see that in, in Sontag's notes on Kitsch. Exactly. Um, there's a, there's a way in which that is. Could you? What's that? These? Why do these two things go together, hand in hand, so on? Lowbrow is fine because lowbrows know their place in society at the bottom. Um, you can be nostalgic about about lowbrow literature because it is so obviously um, uh, inferior to high literature. And that's why you can see on campus there there will be certainly studies of you know studies of comic books and pulp fiction, and uh, 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 that's very fashionable. But uh, until fairly recently, we very much neglected middle brow literature, which is the fact that the literature that most people read, actually mm-hmm. read. Um, there are a few historians who have really pioneered this. Joan Shelley Rubin at University of Rochester has a terrific book on the making of middle brow culture. And I think book historians have really uh, uh, promoted that. Uh, but that's a relatively new field in literary studies. And until quite recently, recently the 1990s was very much frowned upon. Mm-hmm. So there's a way, it, it sort of goes together in my head, rightly or wrongly, with sort of the turn of the old left, to the new left with the attitude towards say the lumpen proletariat. Um, yeah. Although I believe that in both cases, uh, the old left wishes to suppress the lumpen proletariat and the new left wishes to sort of channel its energies towards appropriate uh, appropriate directions. It, it, it could be, but I, I think it, even at this point, we've sort of got beyond the new left. We uh, have. We, this is, we're talking early 60s. I'm about way back. 60s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that what has happened, unfortunately, very unfortunately, is that the left has almost completely abandoned the working classes in general, uh, a process which began in the 60s, but I think has now now come to full fruition. Uh, they view the working class as populist, which to some extent it is. Uh, they can, certainly cannot forgive the fact that uh, Donald Trump was able to win a large share of the working class vote, and Boris Johnson in Britain was also able to win a large share of the of the working class vote, and. Um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, so there is this great cultural and economic divide between uh, relatively well-off bohemian America, okay, mm-hmm. and the Rust Belt out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're sort of not, not, not talking to each other, which is certainly not the case in the 1930s when I think right. the left-wing intelligentsia very much wanted to connect with the working classes, but I think that's almost completely gone today. I I, um, I love the illustration of, of sort of the um, that specialization into imbecility in some ways begins with the third program on the BBC on BBC right. <laughs> BBC Three. Could you explain that? It's a very English example, and it works perfectly. Well, uh, it, it was it was uh, 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 when the BBC started out. There were two channels, uh, and and they were devoted, and they 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 had a mix of music. They had they had popular music. They had mm-hmm. dancehall music. It also had classical music. So if you listen to it, inevitably you'd be exposed to some kind of you know classical music that was that was it was all mixed together. After World War II, they decided to create a third channel, which would be exclusively highbrow. Uh, they would broadcast uh, you know uh, plays by Jean Paul Sartre. They would broadcast experimental music. Uh, they almost strove to make it relatively incomprehensible to the masses. 
But what, what this did is it's- what's, a, what's amazing, by the way, is how many of the masses actually listen based on the reader response and, and surveys. Some, and some tried. Yeah. But, but when they asked, asked the BBC, look, can you give us like a study guide here so we can figure uh-huh. out what we're, what we're listening to? The BBC threw up their hands and said, well, no, that would make it too easy for you. Oh, that would, that would, yeah. uh, so I think, again, there's almost a deliberate attempt to keep the, the riffraff out. And um, uh, uh, and to preserve class distinctions through a, a sense of intellectual superiority. So what we've got here is a, a story that I'm always fascinated in in my own historical work is elites uh, establishing themselves and then figuring out how to keep everyone else the hell out, um, yes. whether it be economic, financially, uh, in terms of blood, or in this day, in terms of uh, sort of intellectual and cultural attainment. Right. Right. And, you know, we see this enacted in the papers just today. We have this whole controversy yes. over uh, uh, school boards where, you know, parents some being very critical of what of what the uh, they're being, their children are being taught in school. And uh, there's uh, they're being defined, in, you know, according to the FBI, as domestic terrorists. Well, I, I'm sure there have been a few rowdy incidents, but it doesn't really, I think, rise to the level of domestic terrorism by any means. What I think is happening is that... Uh, uh, the, uh, or shall we say, the educational establishment feels challenged. Uh, they feel threatened on that level. And I think they very much overreacted to, um, uh, to these uh, protests at school, board me- at school board meetings. I would say that the school board should do exactly the opposite. They should try to engage parents in, uh, in, in, in educational questions. They should be more open about what they're teaching there and, uh, and create more of a dialogue. So let's uh, go to the fact that this is a third edition. Um, yes. I, I came across you from Zena Hitz, who, in her book, uh, which was on the podcast about a year ago, and um, her book on, 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 on intellectual life, and I believe Scott Newstock mentions you, mentioned you as, as well to me. And then I started, then after I had those men- mentions, like many other things, I started seeing this name of this book everywhere, and then was finally delighted to see it in the Yale catalog that it was coming out in the third edition of this fall. So, what does it take for a book to come to third edition, which is relatively rare? Um, how well, does that it, happen? That's a good, good question. Uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, um, uh, I think that it in in some ways I was able to when it first came out, uh, I was able to straddle a lot of the culture war divides because on the yeah. one hand, it was a study of, 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 of working class culture. And the other hand, in some ways, a defense of traditional uh, literary culture and therefore appealed on some level to both the left and the right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it, it, is, it is amazing how you managed, you can appeal to everyone and probably make everyone a little angry simultaneously. Well, that, that, uh, if, I, it, if I made people a little bit angry, I've accomplished my mission. And then it, it, it provoked discussion, I think, was, 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 was useful. And I, I also think that uh, historians have become more and more uh, attuned to uh, what ordinary readers are reading. That whole question is, is being addressed. Uh, Elizabeth McHenry, who uh, I, I know well, uh, she came out shortly thereafter with a book, uh, Forgotten Readers, about African-American literary societies in mm-hmm. the 19th and early 20th centuries. And again, here we see a study of common readers and what they're reading, which is often you know, at variance of what we thought they were, they were reading. Um, so in, in, in that sense, it's, uh, it's very you know, gratifying to see that uh, 
the direction of literary studies has moved in this in this direction. Um, uh, and we see that on many fronts. Mm-hmm. Um, how have things changed? Uh, how did you change the book for a third edition? Um, did you did you change any? I mean, there's a new preface, and we'll get to that in a second. But is there anything else that you do it, to change the book? To be honest, there there were really no changes at all, except for a new preface. Mm-hmm. And there, I did feel that I wanted to rethink some of the conclusions that I reached twenty years earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, I felt at, in two thousand one that uh, we were we had you know gradually moved toward. Uh, ever greater, ever broader and more democratic education, uh, that liberal education was firmly established in the, in, the, in the universities, and that living standards for the middle and working classes were simply going up and up and up. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that, I have to say, the 21st century has been dis- somewhat disillusioning. Uh, I do think that, especially with, after the recent pandemic, that... Um, uh, the middle and working classes have taken a terrible hit. We are seeing a more unequal society. And far from a uh, prioritizing liberal education, it seems that every trend is to move away from liberal education and emphasize basically vocational education. Um, so uh, yeah, that was certainly, uh, uh, that's been disturbing to me. And I, 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 mm. I, I dealt with that at least briefly. Uh, in addition, I, you know, the, um, uh, I'm very troubled by efforts to censor the internet, which, you know, and there's certainly, there's a lot of junk on the internet. There's a lot of, a lot of, you, there is misinformation, no doubt about that. But my feeling is that the way you deal with misinformation is basically through free and open debate, uh, uh, as we did with, 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 uh, with print culture, whereby if ideas are, you know, not well-founded, they can be criticized and discredited. Uh, the idea that corporations, very you know, huge corporations, or the government should be telling us what we can and can't post on the internet is, I feel, very dangerous. Okay, and um, uh, really puts a crimp in what is, can be a very powerful tool for self-education. It's the These kind of issues I, I, I address. Yeah, yeah. It's a, um, are there? I. I uh... I, and, you know, Elizabeth McHenry's work and, and reading this, I was thinking there's uh, still a, a great book to be written on the intellectual life of uh, black Americans uh, through Reconstruction to like 1945 through the, or the Great yeah. Migration. Um, you see you see stuff in Reconstruction studies. I, w- I want to see more of it on, say, like uh, on the schools that were set up so fast. Yes. Uh, where kids uh, were boys, young boys were learning Greek and had been enslaved six months before. And by late 1865, were learning Greek and Latin in Charleston, South Carolina. Right. Um, there's, yeah. there's, there's so much more still to be done on, on, on the whole aspect of intellectual culture of black, of, of, of blacks and reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, but what else are, are there other thesis topics that you wish someone else would take up? Um, and just, well, this is it, like pro tips for grad students here. Actually to pick up a bit on, 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 on the African-American common reader actually yeah. dealt with that somewhat briefly in another book that came out a few years ago called Reader's Liberation. And there's a chapter on, uh, well, there was a, 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 Black working class public housing project in Louisville, mm-hmm. 1943, where they did, they did a census of all the books on everyone's shelf. So we have the complete list. That's um, what do we find? We find well, a lot of religion, as, you, as one might expect. Uh, lots of um, 
Victorian poets, no modernist mm-hmm. poets. Again, there's this, you know, uh, uh, distaste for modernist literature. Uh, lots of Ralph Waldo Emerson, his mm-hmm. um, his philosophy of, 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 of self-help and raising oneself up seems to have had a lot of appeal to it. In fact, uh, uh, um, uh, Ralph Ellison, the, the novelist, was actually named mm-hmm. after Ralph Waldo Emerson. Yes. And uh, but what was most surprising of all is that the single most popular novel, both in on people's shelves and the novel most frequently borrowed from the pub, local public library, was "Are You Sitting Down?" "Gone with the Wind." Oh, and, I did not see that. I thought for sure you're going to say "Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom's Cabin," and I was sitting down for that too. But not, now not, I'm, I'm not, not quite. And they they do they do read some of the, the yeah. black novelists like like uh, Richard Wright, but but the most popular is "Gone with the Wind," and I. I there, they, they, there's no record of explaining why they liked it, so I have to <laughs> speculate. Um, one possibility is this was a, a war and a world that their grandparents had told them about. In that sense, yeah. it, it was great. Let, let's face it, you know, uh, uh, for all the stereotypes, uh, 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 it's a real page turner and, 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 and yeah. very popular on that level. And also, I think Ralph Ellison made the point, you know, that when, you know, uh, black readers read a lot of uh, literature, yes, there's racism in it, but they sort of edit that out and they, mm-hmm. they, they winnow, they winnow from it what they find valuable. And that's like was reading Shakespeare. There you go. Um, that, that, that could also, uh, uh, have, have, have been a factor, but, um, uh, yes, I'm, I'm really hoping that there'll be more research on that. Cause I was really just put my toe in the water there. Yeah. Um, uh, I think there should be more research on common readers in the third world. Um, now, when I speak with non-Western historians, they often say, well, we, we can't do what you did because all these autobiographical sources that, that you use are simply not out there in our, in, our, mm-hmm. in our parts of the world. But others, I think, have begun to explore, have found ways of exploring the common reader. Joan Judge, who's a, a brilliant historian of uh, China, is, is writing about the Chinese common reader in Shanghai in the 1930s, you know. Um, there are historians uh, have found that amongst the textile workers of Bengal, uh, there were these same circles devoted to mm-hmm. self-education yeah. and self-improvement. Uh, uh, black workers in South Africa, again, I think there have been some studies of that. So that's, I think, the direction which I'd like to see the next generation of, of reading historians move. Mm-hmm. Um, and when by... and. Just to reemphasize this point, when they do that, they'll take them into all sorts of. They might even become a labor historian because of it. They'll certainly be studying religious and political culture by doing this. I mean, it takes it. It's such a, a an elemental or essential uh, study for the study of many other things. Yes, yes, I think I think you're inevitably forced in that direction. Yes. So this is um, it's a very moving book. Um, it made me uh, sort of irritated and angry at myself for my lack of diligence <laughs> in reading. Um, it made me uh, it made me angry at uh, my snobbery. Uh, 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 sort of, uh, I never read Samuel Smiles. I had no idea what was in it, but I knew it was bad. Yeah, um, it was it was low. It was common. Right. Um, it was a source of jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's that it made me irritated and angry at other uh the people who probably taught me that snobbery or for, from whom I absorbed it as if by osmosis 
Um, and it sort of made me very sad sometimes for the direction of the academy, which I love, and higher education, which I love, and seeing the way that we've sort of sacrificed our, or neglected our first loves, or the loves that these people had in the coal pits and yeah. the bobbin factories, uh, the, the, the capacity that they had for an intellectual life in very extreme conditions. Putting this together over 20, 25, 30 years, um, thinking through these things, I'm imagining, uh, just to ask you a personal question to conclude yeah. on, um, how this might have influenced your own reading and then therefore your own teaching. Ah, okay. Um, well, first of all, you perforce have to start reading a lot more broadly because if you, you know, I, often they, they would mention books I had not read and of course I have to then <laughs> go on and, you know, figure out and, and, and bone up on them. Uh, so, 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 so there is that. And, um, uh, but I just was found, I, I guess I found the whole exercise of seeing how readers responded to books, the most fascinating kind of reading you can do really, uh, uh, uh just, just, um, uh, listening to what other people thought about books mm -hmm. in addition to reading of course the original texts themselves and uh i just want to just briefly mention my latest project which is along similar lines but it's about um uh the women who read playboy <laughs> and, and and there were millions it turns out there were millions of them and it had a huge female readership which is again not what you would have expected and not what many no, no. That would have would have claimed but uh they found it also a very liberating magazine, even a feminist magazine. And that, of course, drove me back to reading the original magazine, which I had not read actually growing up. And was I was very pleasantly surprised to find what was actually in there. I think most people don't have, who are, who are not subscribers really don't know uh, 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 what Hefner had published. But in fact, it was, uh, uh, there was a lot that was very progressive in terms of both sexuality and, of course, race relations as well. Um, uh, not to mention some really terrific literature like like Fahrenheit 451, which was published in uh, in Playboy. So, uh, 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 yeah, this is um, uh, my latest venture into the realm of, of studying reader response. Well, my guest today has been Jonathan Rose. He's the author of The Intellectual Life of the British Working Classes, which is now published in its third edition by Yale University Press. It's 560 pages. Uh, it's, um, entirely rich and, and for anyone who's interested in the intellectual life or reading, it is absolutely enthralling. Jonathan Rose, thank you so, so much for being part of Historically Thinking. It was my pleasure and thank you. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.